joining me for this episode of the Fountain Court podcast. I am Laurentia DeBrain, a barrister at Fountain Court. In this episode, we will be discussing topical issues in aviation litigation, including the impact of COVID-19 on the aviation sector, trends in aviation litigation, and horizon scanning. We are fortunate to have with us as our panellists today, three leaders in aviation litigation. First, Akil Shah KC. He's an experienced trial and appellate advocate at Fountain Court Chambers, preeminent in aviation disputes. He has acted in and advised on a broad spectrum of aviation-related disputes, including in relation to aircraft leases, design and manufacture of aircraft, aviation insurance, UK regulation, EU competition law, and international regulation, as well as disputes involving the impact of COVID-19. Akil is ranked in aviation in both Chambers and Partners and the Legal 500, and was recently shortlisted as Shipping, Commodities and Aviation Silk of the Year at the 2023 Legal 500 Bar Awards. Second, we have Charlotte Winter. Charlotte Winter is a partner at Norton Rose Fulbright, based in London, with extensive experience of aviation litigation, dealing primarily in asset finance-related litigation. She acts for airlines, lessors and banks in contentious matters, including manufacturer and leasing disputes, worldwide asset repossessions and general contractual disputes. Last but not least, we have Helen Biggin. She's counsel at Allen & Overy, based in London, with extensive experience representing clients in litigation related to breaches of aircraft lease agreements and other related matters such as aircraft delivery, technical claims and repossessions. Both Charlotte and Helen are members of the Legal Advisory Panel of the Aviation Working Group, a not-for-profit body comprised of major aviation manufacturers, leasing companies and financial institutions that contribute to the development of policies, laws and regulations that facilitate advanced international aviation financing and leasing. I'm very grateful to our speakers for joining me and for making it such an interesting discussion. I hope you enjoy the episode. COVID-19 had a significant impact on the aviation sector and therefore aviation litigation. What are some of the impacts you've seen for the pandemic on aviation litigation? When the pandemic first hit, there was obviously a massive impact on the aviation community, the biggest, I think, since the Second World War. And so inevitably, there was an awful lot of advisory work that we were doing. Uh, there was obviously a lot of defaults under, under leases with airlines simply not being in a position to pay. But there weren't many other than a few notable exceptions, which I suspect Helen come on to lessors who wanted to terminate because they simply didn't have a home for those aircraft. There's a lot of lease rent deferrals that were agreed and a lot of restructuring. And I think we've all had to upskill quite substantially in relation to restructuring, whether it's Chapter 11 or whichever other jurisdiction is appropriate for that particular airline. But that side of things has moved on a lot and the aviation industry has really picked up quite substantially since then. So now we're seeing, well, we're still seeing quite a lot of restructuring going on. We're seeing a lot of those rent deferrals now coming back with the airlines having to now pay those. I think one of the things that came out of um, the COVID disruption was actually how the English restructuring system suddenly became centre stage as a viable option. And in particular, you had the Part 26A of the um, 2006 Companies Act UK scheme of arrangement and restructuring. And a couple of notable cases, Virgin Airlines was the first and then um, Malaysian Airlines was, was the second, I think, in, in the UK. 
And I think the Malaysian Airlines was quite an interesting one because obviously it's a foreign airline that was able to grab English jurisdiction precisely because it was English law leases and English jurisdiction clauses. And it was a scheme that ultimately led to, I think, around 52 aircraft leases being, as the phrase goes, crammed down. Uh, and the lessors are forcing to accept reduced rent and uh, revised lease terms. So I think that was quite a big step forward for English law and English restructuring. I think the other side of it was the informal restructuring that you had privately between lessors and lessees. As Charlotte says, they were numerous examples there where it's very little appetite to take your aircraft back and almost a desire to extend the lease term as a quid pro quo. I think those are now reaching a sense of maturity. Uh, where um, in some cases more has to be paid by the airlines. And indeed, the drafting felicity that was used in those agreements is now coming under close scrutiny where you are getting defaults. Uh, and I don't know, Helen, if you've got any recent experience of some of those uh, type of forbearance agreements. Yeah, yeah. Well, based on high, I remember drafting a lot of the time with the help seeing a lot coming back before the courts and, and being litigated. And I think Apple's right. At the time when COVID hit, it was it, obviously a very difficult time. And I know that in particular, lots of lessors were quite swamped with the number of deferral requests that they were getting. And I think people were keen to put things in place and, and help airlines as quickly as possible. And so I do think sometimes that maybe uh, the drafting suffered uh, due to the haste of those arrangements. And I think it is going to be interesting in the coming weeks and months to, just to see how that plays out. because. And do you think a lot of the deferrals now that were deferred kind of back in 2020, 2021 are now falling due again? So it is going to be interesting to see exactly how lessees, in particular, if they're still struggling, might try and rely on some of those gaps in the drafting to wriggle out of repayment obligations. On the flip side, you've got lessors who previously didn't want the aircraft, but now there's much more demand for certain types of aircraft. Yeah. And so they're looking they would be more aggressive in terms of holding lessees to the terms of those agreements or at least trying to and terminating or trying to recover their aircraft if the airline is not in a position to. Yeah, and I do think there's a feeling as well in the industry that the lessors and the financiers were quite, you know, generous. I mean, and they obviously had their own reasons for doing this at the time and, you know, no one wanted their aircraft back, but they could have taken, you know, legally, they could have taken a much harder line and they didn't. And there does come a point, I think, where that generosity has to start to come back in line and people have to start paying what they, you know, the contractually what they're obliged to pay. So, yeah. And I do just think it's fortuitous in some way that it's kind of cross-sectioning with a, with a massive upturn in the, in the market. And as you say, particularly in the used aircraft uh, market, there's a lack of supply, I think. So it is going to be interesting to see what happens. Yeah. And I think what you're tending to find at the moment is, as, as you say, Lessors are quite keen to enforce their rights and are not very tolerant, I think, of rent defaults now. And it may also be that on their own side, upstream, they're having to account to their financiers and their shareholders, which is sort of driving a much harder nose and also there's much greater opportunity, as you say. And I think one of the tensions you're beginning to see with these informal restructurings, as I call it, as opposed to called approved, is that I think the intention behind it was that you would get a forbearance provided you played ball with the rest of the terms of the lease. And they typically have what's known as snapback type clause, which uh, if you default, you can snap it back, where perhaps a snapback is not quite as foolproof as people may have thought, or maybe there are wrinkles in it. But it's certainly now an appetite that if there is a default, then it all sort of falls into place and people want their aircraft back. 
So that's one thing that we were seeing is that there was a prioritization of payments to the original equipment manufacturers. And now, as Akil's mentioned, there's a growing impatience of lessors to receive their payments and to actually be in the priority line for that. So that is definitely something to watch coming up on the horizon and in current cases at the moment, some of which um, our panellists have been involved with and know very firsthand from the past week or so. Turning to when COVID first hit, we saw an increased litigation. What are some of the attempted defences that the palace have seen cash-strapped defendants trying to mount at the time? Well, I think the obvious one that we saw an awful lot was trying to argue that force majeure or some sort of frustration had arisen. Those tended not to get very far in the English court. It's a pretty narrow area and most leases simply don't provide for those. Yes, and the um, typical hell and high water clause, which is the no set off um, type clause and makes payment of rent absolutely to have was upheld by English courts and effectively sort of shut the door on the whole, most of those defences. I mean, frustration was one that I think it was it was an ambitious defence because of COVID, because although the effect of COVID and government legislation was to suspend operations, those Helen High Water clauses actually sort of make provision for that. So that made it a very ambitious argument to try and say this hadn't been foreseen by the contractual parties. I think more interesting was the fact that COVID arose at a time where the um, Boeing 737 MAX was still grounded and that there was at least one case where an airline stopped paying rent, no doubt partly because of cash flow with COVID, but also it was particularly irate that it hadn't been able to operate its 737 MAX fleet. And that was an example where the regulator had, in fact, effectively um, removed its approval for flying. But nonetheless, um, the Helen Highwater clause uh, was upheld uh, and again, it was seen as uh, having been anticipated. It just goes to show that the drafting of the obligations uh, by the contracting parties had in fact been incredibly successful uh, and this try and tested clause worked in favour of, of the leasing community. Am I right, Vicky Noaka, that that was also the case that you're talking about, whether the judge made some over to comments about how frustration here did fail in particular because the, the time that the aircraft was grounded only amounted to 10% of the lease. Yes. And she made some comments that potentially if the grounding had gone out longer, then that might have strengthened their frustration argument. Uh, I think that was made out. I mean, I think that would be an interesting argument. Um, I'm not sure I agree with that conclusion, at least because I was on, on the other side. But uh, it seems to me that if, if the effect of, of the agreement is that the operational risk is assumed by the lessee, and you actually make contractual provision that, that even if you can't operate it, you have to pay for it. Then whether it's uh, one month or 70 months, it shouldn't really matter. Uh, I think where it would be uh, more difficult for a lessor may well be if the lessor has wrongly interfered with possession, because I think the right to possession is probably the one of the fundamental terms of that arrangement. But where it's through some third party, I think that's just a question of whether the parties have allocated that risk. So I, I didn't agree with that, but you're right, there was that obitus statement. And no doubt it's there to be argued at some future date. As we always talk about leases being essentially just allocation of risk. And, and once the aircraft is with the uh, airliner, the lessee, then they really take the bulk of that risk, even though it can feel for them, certainly in these circumstances, quite unfair. And we also found particularly clients who are coming from different jurisdictions where they take a much broader approach to concepts of force majeure. It was often not a welcome introduction to English law and the, and the much um, stricter approach that English law takes to these concepts. 
So one positive takeaway then from the pandemic is that we've had a lot of clarification in English law as to the operation of frustration and force majeure, which previously there hadn't been a lot of circumstances where that could be properly raised on the facts and also confirmation of hell and high water clauses being extremely effective. One thing that Charlotte, you mentioned was the involvement of foreign defendants and, you know, being brought into this jurisdiction by English uh, choice of law clauses and jurisdiction clauses. What are we seeing with an increase in the emphasis now in litigation on enforcement against these foreign defendants? So, I mean, it strikes me that um, once there's a problem with a defendant and it's defaulting and the uh, counterparty lessor decides that it wants to enforce its rights, then it sort of has a 15-love advantage because there's an English law and, and English jurisdiction agreement. And usually there's a process-type clause that's been agreed. And so you can start your proceedings. And then it really depends on what the defendant does. And some may engage immediately, and that makes life straightforward. Others have wised up, I think, if I can use that phrase. And now realise that, in fact, even if you nominate an agent for service in this jurisdiction, the rules of the court only allow for the service of process to start the case. And then it creates a potential trap for the unwary, where you um, continue to assume you can serve your agent for service, but you then get to a hearing and the point is either taken against you that you haven't served properly or you wake up to it because the judge is aware of this problem. Uh, and I've sort of certainly seen both instances. I don't know if you've had that experience. Yes, well, I mean, because we had a panic last week because we had a case on, on Friday where we had English solicitors appointed on the other side and then they came off two days before the hearing and we still needed to serve certain documents relating to the hearing rather than so you were panicked rushed to do an alternative service application so that we could do it in time because we were very conscious that in that judgment that we may need to go and enforce that overseas and so that is the kind of annoying point that people will take you know that they will seize on and they will try and take in you know when you go and enforce it abroad to try and say that the procedural niceties haven't been complied with and it's just the sort of point that annoyingly can be quite successful when it comes to enforcement, if you haven't thought about it. So Sack was right, there are definite traps for the unwary that you need to, to think about. We used to see quite a lot of defendants who simply didn't turn up. And although in as much of English law, you can then get your default judgment. In fact, they were relying on the fact that that would be incredibly difficult to enforce in their home jurisdiction, because a lot of jurisdictions won't recognise a judgment that's been obtained on that sort of procedural basis. And so we used to have quite a lot of sort of summary judgment in default applications where we'd go before the judge to get a sort of reasoned judgment from them in order to strengthen the ability to enforce that judgment in whatever jurisdiction the defendant was based. Whenever we talk about, for example, a repossession, you have a nice English law document in English jurisdiction but ultimately, is where is the asset? Where is the aircraft? Where are the documents? Where are the records? Where is the is defendant? Because so much of it comes down to how you enforce. And that's always, that's a, it's not a particular COVID issue. That's something that's been around for a very long time. I think Cape Town is helping on that. And obviously, there's a lot of movement on the focus from the Aviation Working Group to look at the enforcement side of Cape Town and how it's working, how we can improve it in a lot of different jurisdictions. So that's a good point, Charlotte. You mentioned that uh, there's been greater resort to the Cape Town Convention remedies and direct use of them. Uh, I know that's something that, Achille, you've been quite involved with. 
Yeah, I'm sure everyone around this table has been quite involved in that. I mean, I think we have seen a greater awareness of Cape Town and a greater willingness to use Cape Town, uh, both in terms of the initial stage where you're trying to seek to apply for speedy relief to then also trying to um, deregistration. But it even came into play with some of the um, court restructurings that we saw during COVID, where one of the arguments, which is very hot with the um, AWG at, at Cape Town, was whether or not the restructuring arrangements cut across Cape Town obligations. And that is a big um, question that remains an open one uh, for another day. But certainly Cape Town is very much uh, being applied more widely. But it's also the case that defendants are now becoming more aware of that. And I think had a, we had an example where um, Cape Town was in fact being used against you. Yes, uh, we uh, we had a case where we had a, I suppose the best way to describe it is a bifurcated jurisdiction clause or a dispute resolution clause where the general provision was that the, for the non-exclusive jurisdiction of the English courts, but then there was a carve-out for uh, the exclusive jurisdiction of the Indian courts in relation to what was termed convention claims. Um, and the case that we were doing involved the usual non-payment of rent. Uh, the aircraft had been re-delivered, but minus a few key and expensive parts. And so we had a, a case where we were seeking mainly unpaid rent and supplemental rent and then an order for delivery of the missing parts. And the allegation was that because all of the claims that were for damages and the missing parts stemmed from the termination and the default, that basically brought it within the convention. And so therefore the English courts didn't have jurisdiction and it should all be stayed in England and then proceedings moved to India. We were acting for the lessor and as you can imagine, they were quite resistant to that. I wanted to have the, the decision heard quite speedily in England. And ultimately, we were successful. The judge held that they weren't convention claims, that these were clear claims under the contract, under English law, and that they weren't convention claims. And so therefore, the jurisdiction of the English court was satisfied. So it was quite an interesting case where ultimately turned on the interpretation of the jurisdiction agreement. But I think there were broader underlying Cape Town themes. I think you looked at some of those, Charlotte. Absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things to say is that India is a signatory to Cape Town. And so in theory, if it had gone to um, India, it should also have been dealt with swiftly under under Cape Town as well. And I think that's one of the the issues that the AWG, who are obviously working to, to promote Cape Town, have seen. And uh, Helen won't mind me saying, we're, we're both members of the uh, dispute subgroup that's been established to try and look at enforcement of Cape Town across the member states. And um, Because one of the issues that has come up is that Cape Town provides for a regime for rights for a lessor or a, um, a financier to enforce its rights to recover the aircraft, to, to recover it, it, its asset. But the the local procedural law doesn't necessarily fit with or doesn't necessarily have the right process in place to assist that and to enable that. And of course, if you're in front of a judge in a jurisdiction and supplies across the board where the judge won't necessarily have come across Cape Town before and might well understand that there is an obligation to comply with Cape Town. But if there isn't a, pr- a process by which that speedy relief can be provided for in that jurisdiction, then they're slightly stuck. So we've been looking at procedural law in different jurisdictions and mechanisms to try and uh, and assist the different jurisdictions to understand what processes can be used. 
the idea of creating a sort of model law or just making recommendations? So we're producing for each jurisdiction a uh, contracting state supplement, which essentially looks at what process you can use in order to recognise an order from, uh, for example, if you get an order for repossession in one jurisdiction where you take it to another jurisdiction in Cape Town provides that needs to be recognised. But what is the process for that? How do you do that? And so we're looking at each jurisdiction. Each jurisdiction will produce its own summary of of how that can be done. And then that can be used both by the legal community, but also for references to the court. And then Charlotte's colleague, Kenneth, has also done a a judicial uh, handbook, uh, which is basically there to aim to help to kind of educate judges, because I think it's not a convention that's widely known about in judicial circles. Our judge was obviously excellent, because he reached the right decision on that case. But <laughs> I think it's fair to say that you uh, had to do a, a bit of educating yes. uh, on the yeah, provisions of the Cape Town, you, you and opposing counsel. Yeah, there's always an educational step, particularly with a, a lesser-known specialist treaty. It's, it's uh, I think once you understand it, it's so for those of our listeners who are interested to go and read that judgment, that is the DAE and SpiceJet decision by Judge Pelling from May of this year, if you'd like to look that one up. And I think that case is also interesting because the Cape Town Convention jurisdiction arguments that were made under this very unique bifurcated jurisdiction provision and uh, arrangement that was in that lease, it's also a segue into ambushing that we are sometimes seeing from cash-strapped defendants who need to buy time effectively to be able to pay off their obligations to various lessors. And in that case, and as is reported in the judgment, the defendant had not actually acknowledged service to the lessor's claim for unpaid rent until very recently, within the week before the hearing of the summary judgment application which at that time had also included an application for permission to apply for summary judgment, having been ignored by the defendant and turned up a couple of days later, as I mentioned, with um, an acknowledgement of service intending to dispute jurisdiction, managed to get the summary judgment hearing adjourned to have their jurisdiction arguments heard, uh, have that heard and uh, judgment delivered, and then the further adjournments um, in order for them to put in evidence if they wished, which they ultimately did not wish, in relation to the summary judgment aspect of that case. And that was recently heard last week. Now, that brought quite a number of months for the defendant, Nessie, in that case. And I think late ambushing and these last-minute jurisdiction arguments or adjournment applications are something we're seeing increasingly from defendants who don't have a substantive defence of the debt claims. Is that what the panel's experience is as well? Yeah, so I think if you're faced with this type of claim and you don't really have much of an argument, then you try and push it off and you just develop different strategies. Uh, and this is one strategy where you sit in the uh, sit in the clouds and then just before a hearing you descend down and try and cause as much trouble as possible. In that case, it worked because they bought eight months because they were able to raise a jurisdiction challenge. In another case, I think um, it, it didn't really work because um, the judges now are quite wise to this and so another judge was able to give him two weeks and then it came back on but i think a variation on this theme is that once you get your judgment you're often then faced with an application for a stay of execution there is a grain of a point that the airline has which is that because of covid it's that front and it's, its operations have been disrupted and that usually gets it a little bit of sympathy from the court but 
my experience is that the courts are actually looking for some hard-edged evidence on this and, and are sort of wising up as well to uh, the argument being abused uh, and often being deployed as a sort of informal restructuring scheme that we're, without having to go the whole way of um, actually dealing with all your creditors. And there are a couple of recent judgments where, in fact, um, the English judges have, have said that this isn't appropriate for, for a court to grant a stay of execution simply to facilitate what is apparently a solid airline to sort of try and put off its different creditors. I mean, I don't know if your experience is... Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I do think as well there's a lot of evidence. I mean, and I, I totally understand that as a company, you have finite, you know, working capital and you need to try and manage that as best you can. But I have seen a lot of examples where people are prioritising paying OEMs, so original equipment manufacturers, because they want new aircraft, right? And they want to grow their fleet. And I understand that over probably some of the more patient lessors who deferred their money. And there is that balance to be struck into Akil's right if you've got any evidence to show that they're prioritising other suppliers or other creditors over you, then that's obviously going to be detrimental to any stay application. One thing that we are seeing is that these stay of execution applications aren't being given with any notice. So Reverting back to our discussion about there being late ambushes and strategies of cash-strapped defendants, one would be that at the hearing for the first time, the claimant lessor is facing a state of execution application that perhaps they weren't aware they would be facing. So that is wanted for litigants and other advocates to be aware of is that you should prepare that you might be facing a state of execution application from a defendant who hasn't given you any evidence or application notices or yeah, reference in the skeleton that might arise. And that is something that there are a number of cases covering is something that the courts have said weighs against the grant of a stay of execution. Are there any other arguments in the stay of execution context that our listeners should be aware of? I wasn't sure about arguments, but one point that I feel, and I don't have any evidence of this, it's just something that I feel anecdotally from the cases that I've done, is that I think judges are very alive to the fact that in a lot of these cases, we are going to be going abroad to enforce them. And so they're very conscious of the fact that they need to be very methodical, very considered, very fair to try and prevent any of those attacks down the line. So they will actually hear the applications, even though, you know, procedurally they probably shouldn't because they haven't put in an application notice, et cetera, et cetera. So I do think you're right. You do need to be prepared because the judges will try and, and give them a bit of leeway, I think, just so that they can kind of almost enforce some proof with judgments, as it were. And what's also significant is that in a state of execution application, because it's outside of the norm, it's on the party who's making that application to establish by evidence that it is necessary and it satisfies all the requisite criteria. And without having an application notice and any witness evidence, it's very hard to establish the financial circumstances that would be the precondition to a stay in execution. One argument that's often raised is that it's actually in the lessor's best interests to accept this stay of execution because it would allow the lessee time to come up with the money and, and pay the debt and I think that's something that the courts have put to bed quite quickly to say, well, it's the creditors as to whether or not they seek a summary judgment or not. And that's not something that you should stand in the way of and the court should stand in the way of. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that, that kind of pros and cons analysis of whether it's better to wait or not. Most lessors will have made before they start to issue proceedings. So they can always be taken as read that they've had that, they've done that analysis. And just picking up on a lot of the points you made, Helen, that the courts are looking to make their judgments enforcement proof. I mean, they're also very alive to the fact that even where someone has 
being representing a defendant and then is no longer on the record and so the counterparty has to proceed on their own. There is still an obligation on that counterparty to draw the attention of court points of fact and law, uh, legal argument that might benefit the defendant. And I think the more you'll see to do that, the more strength there is in judgment you're looking to enforce. And uh, I think this is just as fast and made that point quite recently. So moving on from the initial experience we've had with COVID and the consequences of that, we then saw a bounce back in the aviation industry. And with that, we saw an unavailability of resources and infrastructure to actually support that boom. Uh, is the panelists view that, that those issues that arose from that are a one-off blip or do you think that's a trend that we're going to see again? I think it was very much a one-off blip. I think a lot of industries have almost wound down a little bit and sort of let staff go probably in a misguided way. Uh, and so when it all wrapped up with a shortage of employment pool, particularly in this country, uh, it was very slow to ramp up. But I mean, it seems to me they've got more or less back up to speed. And I don't think it's been a sustained problem. There probably still some fallout working its way through. But I, th- I think it's a one-off blip myself. There is, of course, still though, quite a large backlog in terms of the aircraft orders that are out yeah. there. Yeah, And that's something that's probably going to carry on for a while. I think I saw on the Boeing side, they've exceeded 5,000 now backlog of aircraft, which is for the first time, which is obviously quite substantial. And they've still got their max delays that are uh, ongoing. But Airbus as well has got quite a substantial backlog. And of course, that's causing quite a big impact for airlines who are desperate to get these aircraft. So uh, it's probably going to be some arguments there that are going to carry on for a while. And I think that was a knock-on effect, doesn't it, then on the used aircraft markets and also kind of parts where people are trying to repair aircraft and, it, and so that has a trickle-down effect, as it were. Yeah. I mean, is there any reason for this backlog with the manufacturers that one can point to? Uh, it's always very difficult, whether they're over-ordering or, or whether they simply haven't quite got the ability to deliver the capacity. We put some of Boeing's problems to one side, which is with, with a design. Well, that's the argument, isn't it? Is that's the, the debate that's going on as to whether it's a, an excusable delay under their provisions or a non-excusable delay, and of course, what the different impacts are. And while obviously, if there is a delay in, in delivery, there might be some termination rights. Obviously, in this current market, the airlines are really not interested in the termination. They really want their aircraft delivered and they want to deliver it as quickly as possible. So that's a, that's definitely an ongoing debate that's that's being had. Yeah, and we're still stuck with the duopoly, basically, aren't we? It's like the manufacturer coming up in the, in the horizon. And that's something I think that we've seen in some recent interesting judgments that some of the panel have been involved with is respectively the flip side of all of this. So that really is bringing up re-delivery disputes. And in, I think that was more, more about re-delivery of an engine and an engine dispute. But I think across the piece, you're beginning to see, um, I think, um, the start of some sort of row between airlines and lessors concerning their re-delivery condition. But again, those disputes are often conditioned by the state of the market. And so if in fact the lessor has a new home for the aircraft, which I think at the moment there is quite a demand, then there's less scope to drag out and take a much more pragmatic uh, stance with with, a, with an SE and, and strict compliance with the conditions. Yeah, I agree. I do wonder, though, if you are desperate to get your aircraft back and then out to a new lessee, whether the new lessee will take a view of some of the maintenance issues and then if they do cause problems down the line, whether that will yeah. then lead to disputes. And I think we're then back into how the contract is worded and the as-is, where is debate. And what reservations you've made at the yeah. start of release. Yeah, I can definitely see that emerging 
there's a new area of disputes in the future. Yeah, I think so. The leverage is always a tiny leverage, and so the less already wants the aircraft, they're probably willing to sort of sign off and accept what otherwise they might not. But equally, they never want to hold the risk. The other area of disputes that's uh, arising from these sort of market shifts are on sale and purchase agreements and innovations and in particular, because obviously it takes a while for the you know all of the documents to be put in place when you have innovation and then aircraft being sold subject to a lease. And inevitably, the, the market shifts during that period. And we've seen quite a lot of situations where one party or another, depending on which way the market is moving for that particular aircraft, decides that they actually don't want to proceed with the deal and start dragging their feet as they approach the cutoff date. And all sorts of arguments. We've had some pretty aggressive arguments coming through from buyers and sellers in relation to sale and purchase agreements recently. I suspect that will continue. And I think one case where we've seen that is um, Peregrine, where I think the lessee was described as a reluctant lessee dragging their feet um, to accept a, a delivery of an aircraft in Hill. And I think you were involved in that matter. Yeah, I mean, so this was kind of flipping back again to the beginning of the, the pandemic, where lessees didn't want to take aircraft at that point in time and lessors were desperate to get them off their books and, and off AOG status, as it's called, aircraft on the ground. Yeah, that was a case I was involved in and it was before Mr Justice Henshaw about 18 months ago now, where the lessee was due to take delivery of four four aircraft and then the pandemic hit just as the first one was about to be delivered and unsurprisingly decided to say that it no longer wanted the uh, and dragged its heels. And there's definitely a lot of tactics and manoeuvring that can be done around how that situation plays out on both sides, whether you're the lessor that wants to get rid of them or the lessee that doesn't want to take them. And a lot of leases are quite standard in that you have your hell and high water clauses and you have your standard provisions. Actually, the one thing that I've noticed in leases that isn't standard is your walkaway rights on delivery. A lot of it often turns upon the provisions around materiality in, in leases and whether the aircraft is in the right condition. And if it's not in the right condition, is that material? And normally, if it is material that allows lessees to walk away and if it isn't, then they have to take them subject to some compensation. And actually, those provisions are not really standard is what I've seen. And so there is some debate about what is material. And, and definitely in my case, it wasn't defined. And that led to some quite heated debates about what materiality meant. Yeah, I think that is an old chestnut, materiality. And it's all very difficult to define in, yeah. with any degree of precision. And I think that the, the eagerness of exercising a termination right in that case also came into play and the need for each party to really assess the events of default and if they apply properly before jumping into a termination decision. Yeah, I mean, the problem with leases is that they're always drafted, aren't they, on the basis that you have a you have two willing parties. You have someone that wants to give you an aircraft and someone that wants to take it. And so they don't really cater for a situation where one party changes their mind after the lease has been signed. And, and that was the problem here in that the lease was silent about how they were supposed to cooperate together, really, in terms of the delivery. And obviously, it's supposed to be a consensual process. It has to be because, you know, when you're particularly on a re-delivery, where you've got a used aircraft and it's coming back, tech teams need to be involved to make sure that the condition is right. And that's not something that just happens overnight. That's a process that takes weeks and months. And then when someone just kind of downs tools and walks off site, you're left with what do you do and how much data do you give them? But... Yeah, that just is a helpful guide in future now as to what exactly you need to do in terms of notice. If anyone is in that situation, it's definitely worth a read. It seems much more 
focus on precision or drafting of notices as well, yeah. and much less forgiveness if um, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do or, or doesn't say what you wanted to say. So key issue in Parabrain was that the notice had not referred to the specific provision that was relied upon as an event of default and for termination, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. It was, yes. Which is surprising, I think. I know one of my colleagues always loves to tell a story about having terminated a lease. Just they, they anticipated that the airline was about to go into an insolvency process, that there was a, an urgency and they didn't have the documents in front of them. And the termination notice simply said, we hereby terminate the lease between us. And that was deemed to be effective. Probably not the way to approach it <laughs> in further cases, though. I mean, that is the problem, though, isn't it? Is that you often need to move quite quickly because, in particular, you're worried about your aircraft. You know, you think you, your aircraft's are currently located in a favourable jurisdiction and where you'll be able to repossess it quite easily, but you're worried about it flying somewhere else. And so these things do tend to to happen with speed, sometimes like back to our reader sale agreements. Yeah. I mean, I was quite surprised by how had now an approach that George took in that case. And certainly there was other authority going, going the other way. So I think that may be something that will be looked at again in the future. So just looking out forward and doing a little bit of horizon scanning, one of the very topical issues at the moment is environmental, social and governance issues. So something that actually has been around for a while, albeit probably under um, a less interesting uh, label. So there's always been a regulatory framework dealing with noise and noise abatement, and that's been quite heavily regulated. And then I think more recently, aviation emissions has started to gain a lot more prominence. And ICAO has certainly been looking at this since um, 2007 and sort of updating annual reports. I think there's one in 2022 where it's a for green transition. I think it's a recognition that the industry's got to uh, almost get out in front and try and introduce its own definition and measures rather than sort of fall behind and, and then be sort of trying to catch up or be told what to do to let others have more experience. I, I do think there's an awful, uh, awful lot of attention on the um, environmental side and, and decarbonisation generally. At the moment, there seem to be conferences going on on a regular basis on this. Uh, and there's a lot of focus on SAF, saying so sustainable aviation fuel. And I know it was in the press recently that Virgin have approval now for a flight that's going to be using 100% SAF for the first time. But it is still a very small part of the market. I think the proportion of SAF that's available, let alone being used, is really only a very small percentage. I think there was a reference recently to it having a 200% increase, but I think we were starting at sort of 0.5% of the market. So we're still talking about very small numbers. And actually, I think looking at it from a disputes perspective, I think that's probably an area where there may be some issues in future because the infrastructure simply isn't there at the moment to provide for SAF. And if that is quite a big part of the aviation industry trying to decarbonise, trying to hit their targets, then how they're going to do that is going to be problematic and there's going to be a lot more pressure and a lot more focus on what contracts are in place to to try and achieve this, given that it's not going to be available at, at quite a lot of airports. The other thing is that we talk about sustainable aviation fuel, but there's also a question mark as to how sustainable some of this is. It's alternative, it's not kerosene, but it's coming from a number of different sources. And Someone mentioned to me, the other day that that some of it's coming from palm oil and is that really sustainable as well 
So the other area I think that's coming up is this sort of greenwashing uh, side of things where there's a, there's both regulators and consumer groups or, or environmental groups like Client Earth who are focusing on airlines and the aviation industry and looking at, at what airlines are saying that they're doing in terms of sustainability and is it in fact just greenwashing? Is it giving a false impression? So I suspect that there will be increasing increasing number of claims on that side of things. There's certainly an increase in climate mitigation because there are various studies um, that have shown that it's fallen dogged. And since 2017, I don't know if that's starting from a very low base, but at the moment, some of the cases you see are very much directed against the oil and gas sector. But it's not a great leap to go and look at um, other industries which have got a uh, heavy carbon footprint. And I certainly think the um, existing carbon emissions trading scheme, you know, does its job, but it's probably not seen as doing enough. Um, so, yeah, by my watch this space, you know, you've got the Dutch Supreme Court imposing a duty of care on the state to reduce greenhouse gases. Then got friends of the earth taking on Shell in the game in the Netherlands where the company was told to reduce its emissions. And then here you've had a, a, another case against Shell by client Earth where a minority shareholder action failed to bring a derivative claim that the directors were in breach of their duties uh, in relation to climate change issues. But that's certainly there on the horizon. And I suspect that every airline, indeed every party in this industry will be looking quite carefully at their own practices. Well, thank you so much to our three panelists today for all of your experience and expertise that you shared with our listeners. Been very informative and very helpful in next steps in English mitigation. Thank you very much. Thank you. So there we go. A wide-ranging discussion on the topical issues within aviation litigation. Once again, I'm grateful to Charlotte Winter of Norton Rose Fulbright, Helen Biggin of Allen and Overy, and Akhil Shah Casey of Fountain Court for their insightful commentary. I hope our listeners enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Do join us next time for more legal news and analysis on the Fountain Court podcast.